o'clock. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Thursday, May 25th, 2017. Might be time to resurrect claims arising out of the Homeowners Protection Act of 1998. Interesting how Congress has repeatedly passed laws to prevent banks from taking advantage of borrowers, but when we raise the issue in court, the judge doesn't want to hear about it. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones, and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board that you are waiting with a question. The money trail, the paper trail, what's the difference? Forensic investigator Bill Padalo joins us again tonight along with attorney Charles Marshall to discuss just a few of the intricacies in fact and in law of the money trail and we'll put that together with why it makes a difference in the courtroom. And we will talk a bit about how insurance and reinsurance affects the money trail. Here's a summary of some of the items we're going to be talking tonight. The biggest problem in the courtroom today is that lies are taken as facts. And, of course, the perpetrators are directly... Uh, the servicers um, and indirectly the banks and possibly directly by the lawyers. I'm starting to look into that and wondering whether actions which are starting to be brought against foreclosure mills, whether that really is something that will get traction. It's sort of the same thing. Lies Uh, with the current controversy over fake news, like how foreclosures have dropped off to nothing. The reason that lies are taken to be facts starts with the fact that a facially valid document is usually interpreted to contain true statements and inferences, leaving the borrower thinking that he or she must prove that the document is not authentic or not valid or not enforceable. And sometimes that can be done with the help of a forensic document examiner who can show, like we have in a couple of cases now, that the signature was the signature of the borrower but the borrower did not put that signature on that piece of paper which they're offering as the original note. 
In other words, it was forged. And if the signature was forged, then the note is a fabrication. But in most cases, um, um, it, it, it is challenging to actually prove the money trail, and we'll get into that. It's a nearly impossible test because the actual information that could be admissible evidence is only in the hands of the opposing side. And the borrower has been stonewalled when he or she asks questions in a QWR, Qualified Written Request, or a DVL, Debt Validation Letter. To top it off, the borrower is frequently blocked from ordinary and proper discovery on bogus grounds of relevance, which is why attorneys and litigants must make their case for discovery with precision. One of the problems is, is that if you get a judge who's going to deny your discovery on the basis of relevance, then that issue is going to be taken as decided or might be taken as decided when you get to trial, which will block off some of your objections and cross-examination. The task gets even harder when all the attention is on the fake, fabricated, and forged documents expertly prepared at the direction of the servicers by supposedly outside vendors, layers upon layers upon layers, to prevent a lawsuit from penetrating to the actual uh, perpetrators. I guess they're all perpetrators, but the lead perpetrators, which would be the megabanks who did the underwriting on uh, the residential mortgage-backed securities. So you have a judge <clears throat> sitting on the bench and the attorney who says he represents the mortgage or beneficiary proffers the so-called original note based upon the testimony of a robo-witness who knows absolutely nothing. The judge looks at the note and noting that it is facially valid, which means all the elements of a valid note are present. But like judicial notice, that doesn't mean that everything referenced in the note is correct or true. Uh, that's where objections, timely objections, are critical during the trial. Here's the problem. First of all, the lawyer's representation that he or she is the attorney for the designated plaintiff in the foreclosure states and beneficiary in the non-judicial states, um, that representation we're finding is usually untrue. The lawyers work for the servicers, and when they say client, they mean the servicer. Second, the so-called original note is not an original, but it sure looks like one. But we know from studies, agency findings, and litigation that the notes were destroyed or supposedly lost most of the time, right after the alleged loan closing. So that document being presented has what appears to be the signature of the so-called borrower, but the borrower didn't put the signature on that piece of paper. The borrower knows he signed a note, but the note was lost or destroyed. 
millions of foreclosures were initiated with fabricated notes that were forged. And this is an accepted fact by agencies and law enforcement uh, and uh, potentially the courts by implication who have limited the remedy uh, from being able to stop the foreclosure to just being able to sue for damages after it's already done and the borrower is completely depleted of funds and motivation. If the borrower did not put his signature on that piece of paper, then the note itself is not the note they signed and therefore that piece of paper should not even be admitted in evidence, much less enforced. Third, the testimony of a robo-witness is worthless, but accepted gleefully by any judge that wants to clear his or her calendar, unless proper objections are made timely. If you have an objection based upon foundation, hearsay, best evidence, or leading, there are two things to remember. One, Raise the objection as fast as your legs can bring you into a standing position. And two, if your objection is sustained, remember to move to strike any answer that came out of the witness's mouth before the judge ruled. If you wait even a few seconds, your proper objection will and should be overruled. If you don't move to strike after your objection was sustained, what you've done is you've got a sustained objection on the record, but you allowed whatever the witness said to also be on the record. Fourth, that note is supposed to be a memorialization of an actual loan transaction in which the payee on the note gave money to the so-called borrower. In most cases, that never happened. The money given or paid to the borrower comes from a third party who is not identified on the note or any of the other closing papers. We've heard this over and over again from me and, of course, many others. So now you have the party whose money was used for the delivery of money to the borrower, and the other is the party designated on the note. The merger doctrine states that when a borrower signs a note, the debt is merged into the note so there won't be two liabilities. But when the creditor and the payee are different, there can't be merger, which means that the note is no longer evidence of the debt. Be prepared when you go into court to be able to argue that, have case law, and be able to understand it clearly. The judge will be resistant, but you will also be right. You generally can't prove the money trail, although more exceptions are occurring now than ever before, where the court allows discovery and other inquiries into the money trail. But you can backtrack into it by showing there is no evidence or knowledge of the witness as to whether the transfer of the note was a transfer of convenience or a purchase and sale. If there was no consideration for a transfer, it may be properly inferred that there was no consideration for the note. Who would give up a note worth hundreds of thousands of dollars without getting paid for it? But the best way to get into the money trail is not to take on the burden of proof, but by being persistent and merciless in objections and cross-examination at trial. 
and remember to look very carefully at the exhibits being introduced as they are frequently different in some respect than what you have previously seen. Listen carefully to the answer as the witness has been given very careful, carefully scripted notes to memorize and frankly doesn't know anything other than the script. The witness will say, sometimes you can get the, the witness to uh, uh, trip up and admit the, uh, to the script. The witness will say that a thorough search was done by somebody else. That's probably hearsay or the subject of an objection on foundation. Or they may say there's a boarding process. Drill down on that deeper and deeper, and it will be clear on the record that the witness has no way of knowing whether the boarding process was ever used, what the elements of the boarding process were, who did it, whether it's still being used, or how it is maintained, or who maintains it, because most of the records are kept apparently by LPS if the case is in litigation. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, but not the number to get into the show. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If the show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Bill Padalo brought to my attention a decision rendered a year ago in the 4th DCA that was the subject of last week's show. Um, the case was Rebelto versus U.S. Bank. You can download it off the blog announcement from a week ago uh, or and listen to the show by going to Blog Talk Radio and download it or play it. Charles. And Bill, welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Good to be back, Neil. So, we are here to talk about a few different things. First of all, let me give Charles the opportunity to uh, comment on my monologue uh, regarding... Uh, lies and fake news and representations. In particular, I'd like your take on whether or not you think that there is some traction there in challenging uh, opposing counsel as being the uh, attorney for the party named and designated as the plaintiff in judicial states and beneficiary in non-judicial states like yours in California. Charles? Okay. We may have lost Charles, not according to my board. All right. 
then let's move on. And, Bill, um, you and I have been going back and forth in our emails on this whole issue of insurance and reinsurance. And uh, you've cleared up a few matters for me in your investigation of the subject. And um, I'm, uh, uh, you've, you've convinced me of a few things that you brought to my attention. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, Sure. I, you know, insurance, it's probably the most common question that clients ask me about when I'm doing investigations now for, for years is, can you put your finger on uh, the insurance carrier that was involved in my loan or possibly paid off my debt within these trusts, so on and so forth? And it's, uh, it's always been a somewhat difficult task, you know, outside of formal discovery to get insurance information. But any time, as you well know, when you press that issue in court through discovery efforts or whatever, you get the door slammed shut saying you don't have standing uh, to bring up, you know, these contracts between other parties that you're not tied to, so on and so forth. Well, I think uh, what I've kind of put together or what I'm starting to see as a more clear picture is that there's a possibility here, a very clear one, that the funding of many of these insurance policies or uh, um, actually was coming and being paid for by the borrowers through higher interest rates that were being charged on uh, typically these combo loans, uh, your 80-10, 80-20 loans that became real prevalent in the uh, beginning stages of the early 2000s when securitization was really ramping up. Now, the origins, as you mentioned at the beginning of the cast, is the Homeowner Protection Act. And that was passed in 1998 primarily uh, because the insurance, they wanted more uh, disclosure and transparency with uh, the insurance premiums that people were putting on loans when they would finance more than 80% of the the value of the property. So uh, it kind of tied into the whole insurance uh, aspect and disclosure. Well, what it appears uh, as a, a profit scheme that sort of came about after the passage of that act was uh, the prevalence of these combo loans. Okay, so when you talk about some of your large players countrywide, Washington Mutual, many of these uh, securitization participants back in the day, <clears throat> they were really beginning to push uh, these these combo loans and the sales pitch, and I remember being in the mortgage industry, was they'd come in and sit down and say, uh, hey, uh, we've got a great product now that homeowners don't have to pay uh, P- PMI insurance or mortgage insurance anymore because now we're just going to do a piggyback uh, second uh, up to even 100% of the value of the home. And uh, therefore, they don't have to pay insurance to which they don't get any kind of a tax deduction for anyway, but um, this is a great way to uh, put less money down on the property, and uh, and even though you're going to pay a little bit higher interest rate, it's tax deductible, and you can get around this whole insurance issue. Well, what kind of started triggering, uh, I, I always suspected for a long time that a lot of this insurance was being funded through those higher spreads in the interest on those seconds. Um, but I, but what caught my attention recently is um, I was looking at 
some consent orders by the CFPB against some of the insurance carriers involved in some of these securitizations. And uh, I saw the buzzword in there where, uh, well, a couple buzzwords, but one was that they were accusing some of these participants of uh, these, uh, these insurance carriers of kickbacks under RESPA. So that threw up a red flag right there saying, I was thinking, why um, are we, or is the CFPB bringing up RESPA uh, for non-disclosure to the homeowners and talking about kickbacks in these types of schemes? Well, lo and behold, um, I start reading about captive reinsurance and reinsurance companies, which all these players such as Washington Mutual and Countrywide, they all uh, were participating heavily with their own private uh, captive reinsurance uh, entities and subsidiaries. For example, Washington Mutual had Washington Mutual Mortgage Reinsurance Company uh, who was being was involved in all of this. Um, and so as I'm connecting the dots here uh, and I'm looking at some of these master policies, it's becoming more evident that uh, insurance was certainly taken out and being paid for on these combination loans. But in, from my own personal experience, 10 years being in the mortgage industry, I have never seen uh, a required disclosure under HOPA where they were required to discuss lender paid mortgage insurance and whether or not it was on or involved in the transaction in any way. And that if it was, it benefits the lender primarily. And there's lots of disclosures that have to go into this, but it, it also explains to the homeowner that they could possibly be paying for this insurance through higher interest rates. They clearly, and I believe that they were not disclosing any of this. So if you look at your documents from if you still even retain them, from back in the day, any of the borrowers out there that still may have a countrywide WAMU, for example, um, very likely you're not going to see any type of a disclosure there. But as I'll let you probably opine here in a minute, if they didn't disclose that and the funds to, to pay for this insurance was actually being paid by the borrower, that just might be an angle or a way to get your foot in the door to demand this, and, and I'll let you talk a little bit about the statute of limitations on that. All right. First of all, let me do a, a check with Charles. Um, I think we have we have you now. Uh, yes, Neil, I am. I am here. Yeah, I hit the wrong button, so your silence was my fault. Um, oh, that, that, that's quite all right. So, um, okay, statute of limitations is clearly going to be a problem uh, with all these claims that are going back to closings that occurred sometimes as much as 10 or 15 years ago. But there are some decisions of late where acts were so concealed as part of an overall and one of the things you provided me with, Bill, was that the purchase of reinsurance, for example, was, uh, or the payment for reinsurance, 
was not necessarily a service that was actually being provided. Uh, to the extent that this information is solely within the knowledge and access of the perpetrator, then certainly an argument can be made that you just found out that this is what was happening, assuming you can establish when the date was, and there are a couple of case decisions that are saying that in claims, including FDCPA and others, that the statute of limitations does not start to run until the actual discovery of the violation, not the date of discovery and not even the date on which the violation could have been discovered. And, and that follows the general doctrine in connection with remedial legislation like this uh, to remedy a problem that was occurring in the marketplace that uh, you construe them uh, liberally to make sure that the effect on the banks or the insurance companies uh, will be felt, and it doesn't give them a way out just by hiding the information long enough so that the statute of limitations runs out. Charles, you want to comment on that? Uh, absolutely. I think in California, both in state and federal court, even though the type of tolling that you've referenced is disfavored, this lines up as being an ideal situation where tolling would apply because as you mentioned uh, I think it, it may be the case exclusively but it will be the case typically that the borrowers will have no clue that there was this type of reinsurance involved and there will be no paper trail and there will be no documentation certainly that they've either signed off well that they've formally signed off on that there might be signatures related to this is still a possibility, but I don't, I don't see this as being in the documentation trail in such a way that the borrower would have been aware of it or would have, or would have it in their own documentation. And if there is some, some documentation to that effect in rare cases, it's going to be so buried that they wouldn't have had meaningful notice. Uh, I think in the real world though, it's absolutely an argument that can be made because it, it meets the classic definition of tolling where the borrowers in these situations will not have had reason to know that they had legal rights related to this. So that also makes this an, an area of law where borrowers can, can try to go back on offense uh, related to this issue. Well, I think that argument, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I, I'm, I'm wondering about that argument being used at the so-called loan closing. I mean, nothing could be more obvious at this point than that the borrowers were relying upon the representations being made to them about who was loaning them the money. And it's getting increasingly clear with the absence of any 
consideration in the transfer of the loans and the simple rational uh, uh, logic of the fact that uh, the originator would not let go of the loan paperwork unless the loan was purchased from them. So if there's no consideration in the uh, uh, in the transfer, then that would indicate there was no consideration for the note in the, to begin with, which at least raises at least certain presumptions that would allow the case to go forward. And if that was the focal point, if that was the allegation in the borrower's complaint, I don't see how a judge could deny discovery into that very issue. Now, the statute of limitations, uh, depending upon which claim, which uh, uh, statute or uh, law the borrower is traveling on, clearly the statute of limitations on withheld information cannot start on the day that it was withheld. So it's got to start at a later time. And I'm uh, thinking about, I haven't decided, the idea of bringing claims, even on closings that occurred 10 years ago, uh, which is kind of what I was uh, uh, talking about 10 years ago, that are based upon fraud at the closing. And um, I, I think there's just a whole lot more evidence now uh, and information that will support the statements and findings that I made back in 2007 when nobody except a, a, a few people like myself understood the financial structure of these transactions and that the signing of the note was basically uh, fraud in the execution as well as fraud in the inducement. And I, if the word fraud is used, I believe that there will be, or there could be, a very liberal interpretation of the statute of limitations at some point, there is a cutoff. There's no question about it. Uh, but um, I, I think that um, the statute um, is being revisited, clearly. And it would be interesting to see uh, when a couple of these cases get, actually get up to the U.S. Supreme Court, whether they take jurisdiction, and if so, how they decide it. Um, uh, the, the the problem now is that having ignored the actual equities in foreclosures for the better part of 10, 10 years uh, or more, actually, 12, 13 years now, um, if they recognize the fact that those that paper was obtained by fraud, 
a right of action by the homeowner who was dispossessed to get his property back. And clearly that's not a result that either the legislature or the judiciary wants. So, and that's what was being played with in California in the Ivanova decision with the California Supreme Court. They definitely did not want to disturb the foreclosure process, even if it was based on fraud, but they carved out a cause of action for damages once it was all over, which I think really is uh, not much of a gift to borrowers. By that point, they're dispossessed. They're trying to get their lives in order. They're finding new lodging and all that stuff, and they're, uh, if they've been fighting it, they've been paying a lot in attorney's fees and such. So that's my take on on, on the, the statute. And so, one, one thing about that, Bill, uh, one yeah. thing about that is with the reinsurance uh, line of attack, so to speak, that could create uh, a cause of action and potentially multiple causes of action whereby in non-judicial foreclosure cases, uh, these cases could again go, go forward beyond demur. In California, a lot of cases are going forward only on the homeowner bill of rights issues. Those issues are going to be off the table possibly within two to three years, particularly because of, of the sunsetting of the legal framework for that. And the tendency of the opposition and, unfortunately, the invariable tendency of, of too many judges to shoot these cases out early, sustaining demurs, and treating every argument as if it's talking about securitization chain of assignment and as if it's talking about robo-signing when you're actually talking about fraudulent documents and fraudulent signatures this brings to light just how critical the forensic analysis is at the front end. I mean, that's why Bill Padalo's work in analysis is so important. Uh, I think one aspect that we have now that we didn't have 10 years ago is what you were highlighting a minute ago, Deal, and that's historically there were so few people who understood these issues and, and could do the analysis that it was frankly hard to bring cases with the analysis. It's not as if there's a profusion of people out there who can do this now, but there are at least more out there. And it's absolutely critical for the detail in these cases to be brought in because even the Ninth Circuit is shooting down uh, a lot of arguments about document signing and document problems uh, related to how the original note was either fabricated or signed without the borrower's consent, they're putting that all down to robo-signing. And, of course, then they're saying, oh, and that's just voidable rather than void. So to get around that, the level of detail that has to be presented is going to be that much, that much greater. And the forensic loan analysis and documentation has to be that much more substantial. Yeah, if, you know, if if you had a combo loan <clears throat> during that that time period back then, um, it's very very likely 
that you know you were paying the borrower was paying for uh, some of these premiums and and I, I would say that you know and you you tell me if when you're talking about when they issue the notice of default and they're claiming X amount of dollars are, are due and we know that there's insurance on this stuff I can see it in the internal data I can see the advances and all these issues with the accounting but when the sales pitch was you're better off taking this combo loan because there's no insurance uh, on it. You don't have to take out and pay any insurance, and that and it's sort of like the modifications, you know, scam. They're, they're, and I remember the sales pitch clearly. Uh, you take out a combo to avoid the insurance, but under HOPA, if I'm interpreting it correctly, if there's any insurance on that transaction whatsoever, even if the borrower is not aware or doesn't benefit from it on the surface because it's lender paid, it still has to be disclosed. And, and, if, and right. again, I uh, think that, yeah, I think that's true. So I, I think what we're talking about, I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues here with kickbacks um, and uh, charging for services that, that aren't delivered. Like I think I pointed out perhaps in one of my articles, I don't remember, uh, closing that I looked at with, uh, uh, or several closings that I looked at with Quicken Loans, where there were two appraisers uh, in different spots on the settlement statement. One appraiser was the appraiser. The other was a Quicken Loans-owned company that was named as an appraiser and was getting part of the fee, so the kickback was actually disclosed in in a sense, but uh, it was not obvious to anything, anyone other than a sophisticated uh, person who was sophisticated as to insurance, to real estate closings, law, etc. So um, I, I think these things add on the one hand, they add to the pattern of conduct, which may be a reason why they may not be causes of action, but they may 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 be admissible evidence to show that as a as a matter of course, the pattern of conduct was to cheat borrowers as much as they could, and um, uh, and indeed, I think that's what's happened, and that philosophy has. Uh, shown brightly through millions of foreclosures because the ultimate cost of the foreclosures was put squarely on the borrowers and then, of course, uh, uh, taxpayers, um, although clearly the, the uh, $3 billion bailout by the Federal Reserve combined with, I mean, sorry, trillion, $3 trillion bailout by the Federal Reserve and trillions more from the U.S. Treasury and other sources clearly was far more than any uh, so-called defaults. So they were getting money not for the loans so much as they were for the collapse of the mortgage-backed securities, which were worthless 
but the Federal Reserve chose to buy them from the banks who didn't own them. They were selling them, not buying them. Uh, Federal Reserve was buying them to the tune of $3 trillion at face value when everywhere else in the market they were being valued far lower than that, Uh, anywhere from zero to uh, 60% of value. It was, uh, uh, at the the time of the bailout, it was uh, impossible to get anybody to uh, give a value even close to par value for those so-called mortgage bonds because of the correct suspicion that they weren't worth anything. Exactly. They went from AAA status to junk status. Well, I think they were below junk. You know, I, the, you know the, I think it was really very interesting that in my research here, how much the insurance company was behind not the creation of these, you know, no income, no asset verification or stated income programs and the the push up of the uh, combination loans to, to make more and more high risk low money down, zero money down. In fact, they got to a point they were loaning 115%. They were actually on purchases. People, you know, buyers were getting cash back. I mean, they were the insurance industry was pulling the strings and pushing heavily uh, to to increase high risk loans and combos for the so that they could write and write more policies. Um, and they were involved in the whole securitization process. Uh, they had their hands in on the underwriting. A lot of times, it was it, actually I was I was um, uh, very surprised to see uh, how much how much they were behind in pushing this stuff. Yeah, I, I I too have noticed, and I think I ought to bring it to the attention. Well, you brought it to my attention, but I'll bring it to everybody else's attention that the insurance companies. Uh, at least under certain circumstances, and apparently much more prevalent than anything I thought, actually govern uh, the behavior of the attorneys and the servicers and so forth in foreclosures, even setting the bid amounts and uh, uh, where the foreclosure has been uh, successfully litigated on behalf of the pretender lender um that's worth looking into and of course you know the i guess uh we'll close with with the issue of uh were the were the investors buying through their uh so-called agents the banks who claimed to be agents for the investors but didn't act like it, were the investors paid? Or if the banks who got the payment were in fact the agents as they claim, then was the debt satisfied in whole or in part by the bailout? That's the question which has dogged me since I first started looking into this in 2006. And there are accounting answers, and the answer would be, yes, it's paid off. And then there's legal answers, 
where it's not so clear. Charles Marshall, Bill Padalo, thanks for joining me again on an informative show. We'll see everybody again next Absolutely, yes. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.